0: What's going on, y'all? This is Kelly Clarkson. Welcome to Miss Into Podcast, the Kelly Clarkson fan podcast. The very first podcast dedicated to the original idol, Kelly Clarkson. Here are your hosts, Jeremy and Pam. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Miss Into Podcast, the Kelly Clarkson fan podcast. My name is Pam.
1: And I'm Jeremy, and welcome to part two of our deep dive into the My December era. Last week, we presented our album Breakdown, and this week, we are going to talk into the nitty-gritty about everything that kind of went on around the release of My December, because if there was ever a time when Kelly actually had controversy in her life and she had a bit of a microscope put on her it was during this time
0: and the interesting part about this is that it didn't just take place during the album cycle it wasn't just 2007 this mm-hmm. was a thing that was building up since the breakaway era and kind of continued on until her contract with RCA was up i mean we're probably not going to get too too much into Post my December, but it, it it again, it wasn't something that just lasted a couple of months. This ended up being an on like an ongoing thing for years,
1: yeah. And like Pam said, you know this this starts a lot earlier than many people would think. Uh, the, the album itself, which, you know, again, you know, we, we broke the album down in the last episode and we were actually just talking before we started recording. We're like, man, we really hope that people don't think that we were trashing the album and that it's, you know, not an album that we like because I, I think we have made it clear multiple times throughout the run of the podcast that, uh, this is an album that we like and it's just, it's one of those, uh sticks out like a sore thumb kind of albums where it doesn't sound like the rest of her catalog really in any way. And I think that that is one of the reasons why people like it so much. And it's also a good reason why people hate on it so much because they feel like pop singers need to sound a certain kind of way. And she was going against the grain and decided to have more of a rockish or alt rock sounding album. And again, if you, if you listen to the previous episode, you know, there's a, a whole bunch of different factors as to why that album sounded the way it did. But the biggest overall arcing reason why the album sounded like it did was because Kelly was going through some serious emotional stuff. Uh, she had just come off of a huge at the time, it was her biggest album and it continues to be the biggest album of her career. And there was a lot of pressure put on her for that album to continue to sell and sell and sell. And you had new people coming into her life and into her career that were, I think, really pushing her too far. We'll definitely talk about that in this episode. And you're also going to see the progression and the sort of deterioration of a relationship, which I think personally had lasting effects, even though they tried, all parties tried to wash it away and just say, oh, we're all just, you know, passionate and we want to just move on with our lives. And that's not necessarily, I think, what happened, but there's plenty of time for opinion later on in the episode. (laughs) All right. So where do we start? Well, we have to start at the beginning. Now, again, as Pam said, this doesn't start in 2007 with the release of the album. The genesis for everything that happens behind the scenes in the My December era dates back to the recording of Breakaway. And we discussed this a bit before. I think we talked about it in our Breakaway album breakdown, maybe. and Yeah, I think so. Maybe sporadically in, in some other episodes. But... There were early sort of headbuttings between Kelly and Clive Davis when it came time to record Breakaway. We found that Clive really wanted to try to break Kelly away from the pop sort of genre or the or the American Idol sort of stigma that she was going to be wearing. And she even said herself, like, it's going to be on my grave, you know, that I was the first <laughs> Idol winner. But he was really doing everything he could to get her away from being an idol winner. And he wanted her to be a real pop rock star. And so he goes out and tries to find some of the best and biggest names in producers. He brings in Max Martin and Lucas Gottswald. They work together with her over in Sweden. They end up coming back with since you've been gone and behind these hazel eyes. This is where we have sort of our first, divergence of the stories of what actually goes down. So we have one side of the story, which is Clive Davis's side of the story saying that Kelly didn't like since she been gone or behind these hazel eyes and she fought to keep them off the album.
0: And she was crying about it and all this stuff. And just to kind of give a little bit more context, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but it, it'll make sense. But
1: mm-hmm.
0: in 2013, Clive Davis came out with a book yeah. that I don't know if, I get, if I'm kind of jumping ahead, but I think the reason why I'm mentioning this now is because a lot of this, a lot of the pre 2007 stuff was mentioned in the book. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, 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 it goes back and forth because Kelly has one side of the story for their whole
1: relationship, relationship. really. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, she has one side of the story. He has another. He has five fact checkers to back him up, and he makes sure, you know, he notes this in the book. And I'm like, do you really need that many people if you were there for the the whole thing? But (laughs) that's a whole other thing, whatever. But, yeah, so that was back in 2013. So, this kind of came up again, like, a decade later. And it's kind of when us as – fans and as outsiders started to learn a lot more about the situation. We thought we knew a lot because we lived 2007, but then 2013 happened, the book came out and then we found Mm -hmm. out all the whole backstory behind it. So then I'm going to let you keep
1: going. Well, and, and again, I think we have to make it very clear and we'll probably, we'll do our best to preface when we're, we're telling stories and aspects of what happened that this is from Clive Davis's perspective. This is from Kelly's perspective or Kelly's camp. Because there very much are two different sides of stories that we never really got clarified of whether or not one or the other was true. You know, Clive may have had fact checkers for his book, but at the same time, I don't see a reason why Kelly would lie about what has happened to her when – you know, you've got a very well-loved artist and you have this mean figurehead record executive who's beating up on her uh, female uh, artist. I should also probably say is valid because you don't want to sound like the mean old guy record executive who's bearing down on this young female pop singer, um, therefore making yourself look bad. So, again, we're going to try to make sure we we make it clear whose perspective is whose when we're talking about this. So, again, from Clive Davis's perspective, Kelly hates Since You've Been Gone and Behind These Hazel Eyes. Now, from Kelly's perspective, she goes over to Sweden, she meets with Max and Dr. Luke, and they record these songs. She's not feeling the direction that they're going, and they, the three of them, decide to change the sounds of the songs to make them a little bit more rock and we ultimately end up getting the the songs that we now know and love supposedly Clive Davis doesn't like the final products of the songs but yet lets them just go ahead and and keep them for the album then you have a whole separate back and forth over because of you mm-hmm. and I think this is the real first Butting of the heads that happens between Kelly and Clive. I mean, you can, you know, say the he said she said about since you've been gone and hazel eyes, but it's really because of you that we find out. Okay, from Clive's perspective, he says that. Let me let me reset this here. From Kelly's perspective, she was told by Clive that she wasn't a good writer. What was the exact quote? You know, she's a oh, shitty writer.
0: Yes. Okay. Quote. This is from Kelly. Quote. I was a shitty writer who should be grateful for the gifts that he bestows upon me.
1: Yes. What? This is Kelly saying what Clive told her. Yeah. And he said he didn't want – she said that he did not want to include Because of You. It wasn't going to happen on the album. Of course, if you ask him, he'll say, oh, I liked Because of You the whole time. And I do think that Kelly's a good writer. So, again, we've got the first sort of he said, she said between the two of them – Obviously, uh, Kelly, I guess you could say it was a win for Kelly. She gets Because of You on the record. It becomes one of her signature songs, a huge hit. So win one for Kelly there, I suppose. But – I don't know if they, you know, went back later and got the quote from Clive Davis after the song has become a hit, because you don't obviously want to be Clive Davis, the guy who has the golden ear, and say, Yeah, because of you it wasn't going to be a hit, and then it is, and then you look like an idiot, you lose a little bit of your credibility. You gotta hang on to that. So you go, well, of course she can write. She's great. So this is our first sort of bubbling up of everything that happens. Now, Something else that happens around the time of the release of Breakaway, in fact, right before the release of Breakaway, Kelly uh, does her own sort of Breakaway. She releases her management team of Simon Fuller and 19 Entertainment, which is sort of the package deal that comes along with being an American Idol winner. I was actually surprised that she was able to get away from... That management company so soon after winning the show. I mean, I think it's been very common that several of the Idol winners or Idol contestants have been stuck with those management deals for years and years after the yeah. show.
0: I mean, I you know, management contracts are tricky because oft. I mean, obviously Kelly's a huge star, so they knew that they had to literally have something in writing, but. Often with management companies, you don't even have a contract. It's not its not rare to not even have a contract with your manager, um, just speaking from experience. Sure. Um, you know, I don't know, especially because she was the first, they may have had it a little lax because they didn't know what the show was going to be. They didn't know if she was going to be the only winner. Like, they, I feel like they didn't know. So, they may have given her a pretty lax contract. I mm-hmm. have no idea. Maybe it was a two-year contract. Maybe she ended up buying them out. i I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm kind of not surprised because I feel like, you know, say Carrie Underwood, I don't really know what her situation is. I couldn't tell you who manages her now or how long she was part of 1919 19 Entertainment.
1: Mm-hmm. But
0: I feel like her contract probably was pretty different than what Kelly's was just because she was what, like the fourth or fifth winner. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I'm just, it's just speculation, but go ahead.
1: So either way. After Kelly gets rid of Simon Fuller, she brings in Jeff Kwantenez, who becomes her new manager. And this happens again right before Breakaway comes out. And so the album comes out, it debuts at number two, it's a hit. They have a tour booked and they start going out on the road as of, I think it was like late March of 2005. Uh, They go out on tour. And this is where I think, Jeff makes his first big mistake, and that is that as the album continues to put out hit single after hit single, it's not uncommon for artists to do multiple tours to promote an album. I think it is very rare for a pop artist to do multiple tours to promote an album. Now, granted, things are different now in 2021 than they were in the early 2000s, but it was very well, uh, very common for rock acts to go out and go on tour, but they wouldn't do separate tours per se. They would just keep adding legs to tours, you, yeah. know, they would, you, you know, like famously, I think it was either Bon Jovi or Def Leppard, one of the two, and, and probably both of them, really. They would go out on these like 17, 18 month tours, And they would travel the whole world and they would do, you know, three passes through the U.S. and they would go all over Europe. I mean, they would hit absolutely everywhere. And in the case of Kelly, she ends up doing three separate tours to promote My December.
0: And it was also not like that far apart from each other. That's the thing that – crazy like i think it's crazy like she would be i don't know i don't remember the exact dates because i didn't go to any of those tours but mm-hmm. say for example she hit the east coast back in april of 2005 she hit it again back in like july like,
1: like yeah i was say the, the summer or, or fall.
0: august or september like it's really close to have yeah. separate tours and to visit the same markets again because it's it, nowadays you couldn't do that because it's too close to sell tickets. And Mm -hmm. honestly, I mean, the way that a a lot of contracts work is for touring is that you have what's called a radius clause where you can't play in a certain city, you can't even promote or announce a show in a certain city X number of days before or after your previous show playing there. Right. And who knows, that may have not been a thing for her, but it's like she did – Three legs of a tour within a year and a, a little over a year from each other, which is wild.
1: And I know I saw her in Chicago three times over the course of about 18 months. That's insane. And yeah. So you've got the Breakaway Tour, you've got the Hazel Eyes Tour, and you've got the Addicted Tour. And each one of them is, you know, and I'm ballparking just because I haven't looked at, you know, all of the dates for the tours. Um, but, you know, you're looking at a, you know, 25 to 40 date tour each time. And the reason we're bringing this up is because management obviously is the ones who work with the artist to put out a tour and put together a tour and the agents. yeah. Yeah. And they obviously all thought that this was a good idea. Kelly is still a young artist. She's like, yes, I love being on the road. I love doing what I do. But it ultimately ends up taking a toll on kelly because she absolutely gets wiped out by doing all these tours
0: i mean and she uh, i was going to say they they all sold really well like yeah. i'd say most of the shows were mostly sold or sold out so it's not like mm-hmm. you know she was playing to empty amphitheaters or arenas or whatever right. not not arenas but i guess it was predominantly amphitheaters theaters that sort of thing but mm-hmm. she did insanely well
1: yeah Yeah, the tours do great. It's just the fact that she is a 24, 25, 26 year old artist and she's out on some really grueling tours and she's doing nonstop promotion for this album for probably a good solid year and a half. And look, it works. You know, the album sells millions of copies in the US, um, untold multi millions across the world the gamble pays off and it's not even just that it was the U S tours. There were overseas tours as well. So, you know, there was a, it was a breakaway world tour. So that is a lot to ask an artist, especially a young artist who was, I don't want to say coddled, but she was handled more gently earlier on in her career You know, the the mini tour that she goes on is is a handful of shows after Idol. And then after that, it's pretty much the independent tour from what I remember. And I specifically remember because this was the first tour that I met Kelly. I remember something so vividly from the backstage area when you would go backstage during the independent tour. You would meet both Kelly and Clay Aiken. And they would have them sit at a table and everybody would walk by. And the first person would – there would be a, a handler or something sitting at the table. they give you a piece of paper. You write – or they either they wrote your name or you would write your name down on a piece of paper. And they would slide it over to Kelly. And we were all instructed as fans to not speak to the artists. What? Because – Well, we were told to not speak to them because they were resting their voices and Um, they didn't want them to tax their voices because the meet and greets were after the shows and they obviously, you know, they want them to stay healthy and they don't want them talking too much and, you know, losing their voice, of course. It's Kelly Clarkson we're talking about. So she's she's rambling on to every person who walks by. And I just know the handler sitting to her left is just rolling their eyes. But, you know, they were trying to save them from saying, what's your name? Can you spell that for me? So they wrote our names on a piece of paper, handed it to them. She would look down and she would write, you know, to Jeremy, much love Kelly Clarkson. And then she would slide that down to Clay. He would write the same thing on whatever you would get signed from him and it it made me it really gave me a perspective that they were really trying to treat them gently because again both of them are new artists the independent tour was really kind of Kelly's outside and i'm not talking about the idol tour i mean i know the american idol tour was in there as well but you know this is kelly's first tour on her own outside of american idol she's with clay but you know this is a big tour they're trying to protect them they're trying to watch out for them that was my first you know, perspective on how she was being handled by her label and by her management, more so by her management and tour management, because tour management, artist management are two different things. Yeah. So we get to the breakaway tours, and now there's these cattle call meet and greets. You know, there's 30, 30 people from just the fan club alone, not to mention whatever radio and the label are sending backstage. And you have that for every single show. And then you've got. The Hazel Eyes tour, which has a whole other, you know, I, I can't remember at what point the the Kelly Clarkson fan club started to constrain their meet and greet sizes. It may very well have been starting with the Hazel Eyes tour. I don't, I don't recall off the top of my head. You'll, you're happy to uh, correct me no in, in, in show. Well, I'm just going to say to uh, to our listeners, you know, if oh. you remember, <laughs> feel free to comment uh, on when this happened. But you know, as the shows go on, the meet and greets get smaller and smaller, and I just remember people being so disappointed because they were like, "Now I'm never going to meet her because they only let ten people back." Um, so you have all of the the people that she's having to meet and those meet and greets can drag on. Uh, I've been in enormous meet and greets. In fact, one of the largest meet and greets I was ever in was actually a Kelly meet and greet. It was at a one-off Christmas show about uh, three, four years ago. She did a show in Atlanta and the, the, the radio station that hosted the, Meet and greet. They did a really bad job of policing the passes to get backstage because all they were were just lanyards that people could put over their neck. And so when people were leaving the meet and greet, they were passing the lanyards on to other people. And then those people were going getting in line. I heard they ended up doing like 90 people Uh, in this meet and greet, which for an artist is enormous. That is a Huge meet and greet. And I remember the tour management were getting really upset because they were like, you need to shut this down. Yeah. Uh, But either way, I am digressing a lot here. But um, Kelly gets very taxed on the Breakaway Hazel Eyes and Addicted tours to the point where we get to the infamous Irvine show. And Pam, I'll let you pick it up from there.
0: Yeah. And I think we've we've mentioned this multiple times. I think we mentioned it last episode. Um, I know TJ, who we had early on in our podcast about with the My Kelly experience, she was supposed to meet Kelly for the very first time at the Irvine show. Basically, it was in Irvine, California on the 2006 Dictator. And again, Kelly was still doing meet and greets after shows. You know, at some mm-hmm. point, I think it was Two Worlds, Two Voices, she ended up switching to doing before show meet and greets. But this time, she was still doing them after and it was the only time she's ever canceled a meet and greet um and basically it was she's you know she said it was the the lowest point in her life she was so run down she was exhausted she was depressed and i get it that's what all of this stuff all of this constant touring constant promo constant demand it'll do to you and you're also a very public figure like, not you know, if you were even just like a regular everyday person, that kind of demand would have a toll on you. And then, puddle you know, put on top of that, like people probably stopping you in the street, and just people are always in so demand and pr- probably are always yesing you. And it, it can get exhausting. You probably don't even feel like a real human after a while. That's my guess. Um, so yeah, that. She wrote Irvine the song that night on the bathroom floor. She locked herself in the bathroom floor of her dressing room backstage. And it was kind of a wake-up call. Was she, you know, I guess she finished off the tour. There probably wasn't that much left, all things considered. And that was pretty much the end of the breakaway era, right around then.
1: Yeah, and we don't know the, the timeline – From her personal life, but we know that it was around this time that she and David Hodges uh, sort of end their relationship.
0: That was earlier, I think. That was before Breakaway came out. Yeah, because I'm pretty sure what had happened was – I think they ended things sometime in 2004. She ended up rewriting Hazel Eyes at the very last second to reflect that. That's right. See – And then she dated Graham in 2005.
1: Yeah. See, this is why I don't see. I don't follow a lot of Kelly's like personal life stuff, so I don't know anything about boyfriends and timelines. What does that say about me, Jeremy? No, I'm kidding. Hey, look, I I'm just <laughs> I'm just here for the music.
0: No, you're good. Um. So yeah, I mean, there was just a lot of crap as well. You know,
1: but we also know that that David was sort of a a figure that she couldn't. I don't know if she couldn't shake him, or there were things being said or done in the background because. For a guy that she had ended a relationship with at this point two years before or a year and a half before, he still figures very heavily in the recording of the My December album.
0: Yeah. I mean, listen, if you've been through a really, really crappy breakup, and her specifically was because I'm pretty sure he proposed to a different woman like right after he mm-hmm. dumped her. You know, I'd be pissed off and really depressed for a while, not going to lie. So, I get it, but also I think she wrote a lot of the songs um for the album probably late 2004 and into well into 2005. So, she'd been just sitting on these songs for a while and mm-hmm. needed to get them out and then that's where this new album comes into play. So, I don't know if she was still like hung up on him by the, by end of 2006. I have no idea, but no. like if she was, I I well said. I wouldn't be surprised. I, I mean, I've, 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 I've been there.
1: There's no wrong way to go through a breakup. So, yeah. everybody, everybody <laughs> processes them differently, and exactly. there's no, there is no wrong way. We're we're yeah. saying that first and foremost. So, yeah, end of uh, 2006, we get into you know uh, the end of the Addicted tour end of the Breakaway Era. Uh, She starts to write more and more heavily for the new album. She's writing with new people like Jimmy Messer. She's writing with Aben. And the songs that ultimately would become My December start to take shape. Now, this is, again, where Clive Davis comes back into the picture. And he is... Presented with some of the songs for the record. And again, there is some mention of this in his book, The Soundtrack to My Life. Uh, If you haven't read it, it is actually a very interesting read. I'm not saying that I'm like Team Clive or Team Kelly in any of these arguments because I'm trying to be objective in the whole thing. I think that there is probably truth to both sides of the story. I want to say again with my Kelly Homer hat on that I would tend to believe Kelly more just because I don't see a reason for her to not tell the truth about her life and her career. I mean, this is what she experienced. This is, as they say, this is her truth. And so this is what she felt, what she went through, and everything that she says is valid. And so it's it's sort of hard to say, okay. Yeah, Clive Davis is probably more right because he's more experienced and he's the big popular music mogul, so to speak. But Kelly comes to him with some of the songs for my December and Clive essentially tells Kelly, according to Kelly, that she didn't know how to write a pop song. She didn't know how they needed to sound, despite the fact, and this is Kelly's word, she's saying, never mind the fact that I am essentially in the perfect age for pop songs. I am in the demo for pop music. I'm a, you know, 23, 25 year old woman. How do I know what doesn't make a good pop song. Pop songs are basically directed at me in general. And so, uh, so they're going back and forth. Clive is trying to make deals with the album. Apparently there was a deal where Clive hears the whole album and he offers to pay Kelly To remove five songs from the album and let him put five songs from his hand chosen writers, which, of course, he wants them to be hits because in Clive Davis's perspective, a pop singer in particular, a pop music singer has to rely on hit songs in order to have a sustainable career otherwise they go downhill and he he gave an example that people like uh, and I'm going to make, you know, mention of people that you probably won't know but like Taylor Dane look her up she was big in the 80s.
0: Oh, what wait wait wait, don't 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 tell me. Um crap, I know the one song that she did. Um, She's got
1: several big songs that she uh, had.
0: It's uh, I mean, all right, tell me. She was she, she was like big in like the 80s, right?
1: Yeah, she was very big in the 80s. Uh, She had a song called With Every Beat of My Heart. Uh, She had Tell It to My Heart. Maybe that's what I'm thinking. Tell it to my heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me I'm the only one. And then she's got I'll Be Your Shelter, Love Will Lead You Back. Uh, I mean, she had some really big pop songs and some big pop ballads. And he said an artist like her would have had a longer sustained career had she let other people write her songs rather than – And I don't want to put words in his mouth, but essentially he was saying rather than be selfish and want to write everything herself. And and it's true. You know, Taylor had a peak early on in her career. Taylor Dane, that is. I don't want anybody thinking I'm talking about Taylor Swift. (laughs) Uh, Taylor had a peak in her career early on, and then she plateaued and then kind of flatlined. And we really didn't hear much from her after that uh, because she decided to take control of her career and was writing all of her own music. and. Clive Davis is thinking, okay, we're only on the third Kelly Clarkson album here. We can't have her taking control and writing all of her songs. Otherwise, this artist that we've invested all this money in is not going to be making it back for us. We need to have other people. Again, this is where the stories diverge. Kelly says that, you know, Clive wanted to, you know, remove these songs. He was going to give her $10 million or something, and then – he says that's not true and that he wanted her to be able to have the artistic freedom to put out the album that she wanted to. Um, this this, one, this is the one of the more interesting stories from the era because I've, I've never in my career and I granted I'm, I'm on sort of the, the, the end of the whole process when it comes to music. You know, I'm the guy who plays the music on the radio. Uh, Pam, you might be able to speak a little bit more to this. But have you ever heard either from your artist's perspectives or hearing stories from the people you work with? Have you ever heard about a label paying an artist to take songs off of their album?
0: Not from my personal experience. No. Um, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: No. I mean, maybe. I mean, no. I mean, I've never worked with a I haven't really worked. I haven't worked with any major label. I'll say that, but yeah. oh, my voice just cracked. Hope you guys enjoyed <laughs> that. Um, no, but I mean, I've never heard of that before. I mean, I feel like I've heard of you know. No, yeah, no, I haven't. I'm trying to think of an example. I haven't. No, it's. I'm yeah. not. I'm not saying it's not common. Maybe for bigger labels, it is common. For small indie ones, I haven't heard that before.
1: So yeah, and, and this all came out in an interview in L magazine, well after the album came out. And it actually came out that one of the songs that Clive wanted to have on the album was a song that ultimately ended up on Lindsay Lohan's album. That's right. Uh, And and we've talked about this song before. It's called a little – the the album was a little more personal. And then the song was – I think it's called Black Hole. Is that right? That sounds right.
0: Why do I feel like it's something completely different? Maybe you're right. I
1: don't know. But, yeah, there was, there was a song called Black Hole, I think, is what it was called. And it was, it was on a Lindsay Lohan album, and it was originally intended for Kelly to sing on My December, oddly enough, an album where we ended up with a song called Hole itself, uh-huh. neither here nor there. Uh, but, yes, uh, so Kelly gets offered all this money to remove songs, which I think she did the right thing because that really – when you take money to sacrifice your artistic uh, – Creativity and your 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 art your art just your artisanship artisanship. Is she making bagels? Um, (laughs) Your artistic uh, vision. You take money to abandon that. That's sort of a a bad look for her. So either way, that happens. That goes down, and then we're finding out that you know Kelly has these one things to say about the album. Clive Davis has other things that he's saying about the album, and this is where we sort of start to hear the initial rumblings that this album is not headed in the right direction.
0: I just want to make a little, little cliff note. Sure. The Lindsay Lohan song. i again, I don't know what it was called on Lindsay's album, but at least for a while it was called something I never had.
1: Interesting. Okay.
0: Yeah. I just looked it up. Just okay. Great. Th- throw that out there.
1: Yeah. Uh, Kelly also in that, that L article, because I remember I, I, I bought the, I bought the copy of the, uh, the, magazine when it came out because I was like, ooh, give me all the dirt on this album. Is that the album. one where
0: she's like, disgustingly photoshopped on the cover?
1: Yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> but she did have a quote in there about being... Uh, she said something to the effect of, you know, I'm a good singer. Why can't I be a good writer? Uh, obviously, you can't be both. Uh, and also,
0: and- I've sold more than 15 million records worldwide and still nobody listens to what I have to say because I'm 25 and a woman.
1: Yeah. She also said that. Which like, you know we're we're still hearing female artists going through that today. Absolutely. So she was definitely not a, uh, not the first, and unfortunately not the last. All right, so we're still in the process of recording the album. It is ultimately Clive Davis. He listens to the album and he he talks about this in his book. He said he listened to the album. He said he didn't hear a hit. Uh, he thought never again was okay but wasn't in love with it offers kelly the money to take off the songs which is not in his book he does not mention this part uh kelly fights back gets to release the album and again this is where you know kelly is saying that you know she got to release the album the way she wanted to clive davis says well we just decided to let her And I'm paraphrasing here. I'm not quoting him directly, but essentially we're going to let her make her own mistakes. We're going to let her learn. And Kelly and we had had some notes about this. And uh, Kelly had a really good quote about this album. And I want to I want to make sure I read this right. She said, I know it's not going to do what Breakaway did because it's not as mainstream. I get that. Some of the songs are not what 10 year olds are probably going to listen to. But we all go through situations for certain reasons. And I think we should share that. This record is more intense, it's more raw, it's more emotional, but it's not that different. It's not Metallica. Even if it does tank, who cares? It's one album. And I think that that is a bold statement for an artist to make, not in a bad way. Uh, That's a bold statement for an artist to come out and say, you know what? If my album tanks, I don't care. I got to say what I wanted to say. And I give her a hell of a lot of credit for that.
0: Yeah, and I have to say, I feel like had and – I'm not just saying her in general. I feel like, you know, had – I don't know. I feel like possibly if it were like a smaller artist who maybe really needs the money, mm-hmm. they the artist may have been a little bit more – I don't want to say flexible, but more willing to change stuff up. But you know what? Kelly was in a – Presumably, in a comfortable situation financially where she is now just in this because she wants to create the music she wants to create. I'm not saying that, you know, smaller artists are not in that sense, but as someone who works with smaller artists, you always have to have that in mind. You always mm-hmm. have to have the, I need this to be as successful as possible. Whereas her, she has a little bit more flexibility and I think that's great. And I think it's really, I think this is really what she needed. Does that make any sense?
1: Yeah, no, I completely, okay. I completely see where you're going with that. And, and that's, I think this kind of goes into sort of going back to our previous episode where we sort of break down the album. And Pam and I talked about this prior to starting the show today that, you know, we hope people don't think that we were being intentionally hard or, or overly critical on the album. Cause again, you know, both of us had made it very clear that we love this album and it is, it was the album that she needed to make at that time. And so I think that even I, as somebody who, who liked the album when it came out, even now I'm appreciating this album more and more as I get further and further away from its release, because now you have more of her career, more of her life, more of her catalog to look at as a whole. And you can see that there is a natural progression in her career and the things that she's singing about And, you know, she later said that she's not an artist who feels like she has to write all of her own music is she says, as long as I can relate to a song, I will sing it. And that's kind of her litmus test for whether or not she's going to record a song that was written by somebody else. If she's not feeling it, if she doesn't connect to that song on some kind of level, then she's not going to sing it or she's not at least going to release it. And so There was a reason why she needed to just sit down, she and Jimmy, sit down and write this album, get it out, get it out of her system, and then move on. So, in early 2007, I think it's January, February, we find out that there is going to be a new album on the way. Uh, She does uh, a couple of new songs on tour in the Addicted tour. That's where we hear Maybe and Yeah. Yeah. And then we get to February. We get the first performance of One Minute on the Daytona 500. And then we find out that in July, the album is set to come out. So, we're working towards July. We're working towards July. And then at some point in the spring, they bump the album up to June. And it gets bumped to, I believe it was June 26th. And then... Shortly – and they, they say the reason that they bumped the album up is because they wanted the audience to be aware of it and they wanted to have it be familiar in time for them to go out on tour. And we'll we'll touch on the tour here in just a second. So, the album is scheduled for July and then it gets bumped up to June. It was June 26th was going to be the original street date. Then you fast forward to early June, maybe even late May. I don't remember exactly when it is. The album leaks. And it may have been actually mid-June. The album leaks out much like every other album in 2007. And the album actually gets bumped up again. And it gets bumped to June 22nd, which was that Friday. Now, nowadays, Fridays are the music new music release days. And it's pretty common. And people are used to it. But back in 2007, we were still getting new albums on Tuesdays
0: the Friday is a so, pretty recent thing within the, only the last couple of years
1: yeah yeah the Friday is a is a newer thing because the whole Tuesday release thing was based on an antiquated system and they just sort of just kept doing it because it was what they always did like movie, uh, movie releases still come out like on video and whatnot a lot of those still come out on Tuesdays but even the movie thing is starting to uh, change up a little bit so they bump up the album to the Friday before the intended release day because the album is leaked out and now they're trying to Stop the flood of people downloading the album illegally. So they bump it up to that Friday. The album comes out, and it actually does better than the previous two albums. And I think that that's something. Even though we sort of touched on how this was a lower sell- selling album, and you know didn't perform as well as some of the bigger albums like Stronger and Breakaway, it actually sold more in the first week than Breakaway did, and. Then thankful did uh, not by, you know, leaps and bounds. I mean, it was a few, you know, a few 10, 10s of thousands of copies uh, more so, but the album still does much better. It actually debuts at number two. And this is where I shake my fist at <laughs> Hannah Montana. It's the uh, I think it was Hannah Montana to meet Miley Cyrus or something like that. That was the the name of the album that came out. And it was that was like that album ended up selling like three hundred fifty thousand copies or something in the first week. And so that album kept my December from debuting at number one, which it definitely would have. Uh, part of me was saying to myself, oh, this is actually great that the Hannah Montana album came out the same week because you're going to get those. Younger girls who, you know, like Hannah Montana and they're going to be, oh, and Kelly Clarkson, I'm going to buy that album too. And I'm, I'm sure that that was the case for some people, but Hannah Montana just had a, a bigger draw. And so she ended up getting more albums sold in the first week. But either way, the album comes out. But then unfortunately, it then begins a pretty dramatic slide when it comes to album sales, and within a few weeks, it's a non-factor on the charts and sort of just falls away. Um, And it was right about the time that the album came out that they announced this big arena tour, the big My December arena tour. It's going to be Kelly's big first or first really, really big tour. Uh, Pam, I'll let you take it from here.
0: So the tour was actually announced back in April 26, 2007. This is specifically, I believe this was just the U.S. and Canadian dates. Um, That's what they first launched with. So this was, you know, about two weeks or so after Never Again came out. So they were hoping that, like, the success of the single was going to, like, launch ticket sales. And, like, you know, again, arenas are massive compared to your, like, well, like, your amphitheaters. You know, arenas can have what 25,000 30,000 it depends on the arena obviously
1: and yeah well I mean mo- most arenas will probably cap out at around 15 is it that uh, is it only that much yeah, I mean like like New York or New York size arenas maybe you're gonna like MSG is probably gonna get closer to like 18 Okay, but yeah I mean most arenas are gonna be in your between 14 and 17 thousand capacity All Right.
0: Now what what I will say about amphitheater about like the outdoor amphitheaters and that's what Kelly had done for a lot of the Breakaway era mm-hmm. is you get people who get the actual seats but you also get the lawn seats and the lawn seats typically can are typically I don't want to say always but are a little bit cheaper and they're like your more casual seating so you know I've gone to shows where I've gotten like twenty five dollar lawn seats where when you go to an arena. I mean sometimes if you're in the last row maybe you can get something for pretty cheap but it's usually going to be a little bit more expensive. I just want to mm-hmm. preface with that. So anyway, yeah, this was her first big like arena tour and the Matt Carney was the opening act who um I really like Matt Carney. He's like, you know, a cool like singer-songwriter kind of guy. He was mm-hmm. on the rise. He had about, you know, maybe two songs out at the time, but he wasn't like a major superstar by any means. But he was a name. Yeah. Um And yeah, I got tickets. I was so excited. It was going to be my first ever Kelly show. I was so pumped. And then I remember exactly where I was. June 14th, 2007, they announced the tour was getting canceled. And basically, there was an official announcement from Kelly herself. And she just said, it's the fact that touring is just too much too soon, which that's just a nice way of putting it for the public. But yeah. there was definitely a lot more drama behind the scenes. Basically, what had happened it was a it wasn't just one. It wasn't just because oh the album isn't doing well. There was a lot more because of that. Um,
1: and this and again this and this completely screws up my timeline that I was saying as I was tossing it over to you because it's all right. the tour actually the tour actually got canceled before the album even was released. Yeah, and and so we all had sort of a suspicion that things were not going to be going well for this for this particular era but but go ahead
0: so yeah i mean basically it was just because the singles hadn't been doing well and i guess the album leaked it was a bunch and you know you know i have to say never you know never again compared to breakaway they're very different songs so like the mm-hmm. general public they weren't gravitating towards never again it's not really a secret we've mentioned that before um you know it did fairly well but you know, we all know how that that turned out. So La- the Live Nation CEO and venues were also just saying it just didn't sell well. And there's, again, many reasons for that. Again, never again had something to do with it. Um, there was some drama going on with Clive Davis. I guess that was becoming public because Kelly was doing some interviews at the point with, you know, Entertainment Weekly. She was on the cover, Elle Magazine. There were some things that were somewhat coming out over the course of these few months, Um, I I don't know exactly what the timeline is, but it's all around the same time. Um, I also
1: wonder if it has something to do with just Kelly fatigue, because again, we're coming off of three consecutive tours to promote Breakaway, which were in 2004, 2005, and 2006. And so by this point, like we had said earlier in the podcast, that she had visited many of these markets three times over the course of the last few years, you know, do people now want to, who have just seen Kelly multiple times over the last few years, now are they going to want to pay arena prices to see her? Plus you've got a single that isn't lighting the world on fire. She is, she's, I don't want to say she's not relevant on pop radio because at this point, walk away has sort of it's run its course. And you have to understand that in the pop world and especially, you know, when it comes to the music that's being released, and again, streaming is not a thing yet. Radio airplay and and I don't even want to say music or TV is is not really a big factor anymore because at this point MTV has abandoned videos. But
0: TRL was off the air.
1: That's point. T- yeah, TRL was gone. And so you've got radio, which is still a big factor in keeping artists relevant and, you know, it, it doesn't feel good to be like, Oh yeah, Kelly wasn't relevant, but it's music is very much a, what have you done for me lately? Kind of a thing where, you know, I can name you, you know, half a dozen artists who are some of the biggest names in the world who are not relevant right now because they don't have any new material out right now. Like Carrie Underwood, huge artist, not really relevant right now because she doesn't have anything out.
0: I think she actually just came out with something. Like of course literally. She would. Of
1: course she would because I'm pretty I said sure that. within
0: like the last week or two, but yeah, I couldn't. Yeah, of, course, I, of course. But I couldn't name I you any that. I couldn't I couldn't name you anything from it though. That's
1: my point. Like okay, so Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift is relevant right now because she's ramping up to the re release of her fearless album. Okay. She's relevant. I w I wanna just look over here at the wall of music and just pick an artist that hopefully has Madonna, not just released Madonna. Ma- well, yeah, Madonna not is relevant not, right now. No, Madonna's not really relevant right now. She she just posted some stuff on Instagram that made a stir, but that doesn't create relevance. Oh, did so, she? Oh, no. Yeah, but no new music. <laughs> but yeah, that's the thing. Madonna, huge artist, not relevant right now because she doesn't have anything on the radio. And so Kelly was under sort of this similar scenario in early two thousand and seven before Never Again came out. And when you are and I use the, the strongest of the air quotes, when you are not relevant, you are out of sight, out of mind for the the consumer, for the audience. And the general
0: so, the general fan, not general. Like yeah, us. Not, not
1: us. Not us. We were <laughs> we were living and breathing and knee deep in it every day. The average casual fan who's going to drop 150 bucks on Kelly Clarkson tickets, you know, and they're gonna sit in the middle of the arena and they're gonna be fine with it, because that's definitely not any of us. Uh, They are the ones who are they're relying on to go out and buy the record and buy the concert tickets. And when they go on sale, it just doesn't happen. I mean, we we the the Uber fans in radio, we call us P1s. We're like the absolute super fans of a radio station. The P1s of Kelly Clarkson go out and we snatch up tickets. But quite honestly, and I don't mean this is in as any sort of a derogatory thing to all of us. There's not enough of us. No, there's There's, not.
0: We're all things considered, we're not a massive fan base. I mean, it's it's bigger now. Now we are because the talk show, the voice, all that stuff. But 2007? Hell no.
1: No, it was a very niche audience because it was people who just liked Kelly for her music. Now you're going to have the casual soccer mom who, you know, may only have. Half a dozen Kelly songs on her iPod that she listens to when she works out, but she likes her talk show and she thinks she's cool on the voice. So she will definitely go see her in concert. That person wasn't buying a Kelly Clarkson ticket back in 2007. Even if you just transfer her exact age back to 2007, she's not buying a Kelly concert ticket because she doesn't have that mass appeal like she does now. So. And you know, for for people who are, and we say you're too close to it. You're if you're too into the Kelly fan knowledge, like you're on the express every day, and you're which is
0: probably most of the people listening to this podcast. Exactly. Let's be honest.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm kind of talking exactly to you guys. We were the ones who bought up the tickets, but there's just not enough of us. It may sound like, oh man, like everybody's going to be buying tickets, it's going to be great, they're all going to sell out. Yeah, you're probably going to be lucky to get a couple hundred people in in each city, if that. So there's not as many as you think. And the venues are not going to consider it a success when they sell a couple of hundred tickets, you know, as tickets go on sale. And I seem to remember, you know, a lot of us were buying tickets right away when the My December Tour went on sale. And we're all like, wow, did everybody else get really good seats? Because I got really good seats. And that when, when I started to hear people say how good a seats they were getting when the tickets went on sale, I was like, that's not good. Right, that's because a,
0: nowadays it's like she kind of, they kind of oversaturated these markets because they played them so often in like mm-hmm. a two-year period, give or take. So, another reason why is that Jeff, her manager, just, I guess, you know, worked with the agents. I don't know what the agents, what they were thinking, but they didn't really read the markets well. You know, they're mm-hmm. like, you know, she sold X-Men tickets here, she sold X-Men tickets here, and they thought – you know, maybe that plus radio play during the breakaway era; those are all things you have to consider. Um, they're like, great, we're gonna we're we're gonna estimate that she's gonna sell X amount of tickets on um, the pre-sale, X amount on on sale day, and then we're gonna sell out or whatever. And again, they thought all of this, you know, probably very early. 2007 before Never Again even came out because you have to plan Mm -hmm. these tours way in advance. Maybe even 2006, they were thinking this. So this could have been before a lot of the internal drama um, or they didn't think that the internal drama was going to escalate as much as it did um, because you have to plan – you have to plan your – you have to route your venues way in advance. If you you have an April announced date, you have to have that planned months in advance because you have to figure out – When you have to figure out all the marketing for, you have to figure out the opening acts, you have to figure out all the production aspects. And there's a lot that goes into planning a tour. That's a lot of what I do for my job. So it's Mm -hmm. like, you got to plan this out way in advance. So they just didn't, they didn't have, an. They they didn't use accurate data. Let me just say that. Mm -hmm. Personally, I, you know, not that I'm an expert at this. I'm only 27. I don't have that much experience, but I would have, probably not announced the tour until I knew way after the first single was out, me, you know, that sort of thing. You know, you do like the pre-order of the album with the tickets. To, I don't know. I just, I would have done the, the, the timeline a lot different, but at the same time, 2007 is very different from 2021. So I have to keep that in mind.
1: And I think that they were also trying, they also probably thought, Hey, look, we had three really successful tours in a row. You know, they sold well why not just keep it going? We've obviously got some momentum. Exactly. But but I think it was – unfortunately, it was the the failure of the first single that killed the momentum of the tour. And I, I personally would have probably waited until well after even the album cycle was sort of over. Um, if – I mean, honestly, I probably would say, look, if the album isn't successful, let's not – wrap ourselves up in this my december tour sort of blanket let's let the album work its way through okay so the album doesn't do all that well let's build up demand let's keep her off the road for a while and then come out with an amphitheater theater tour
0: well here's the thing though you have to do a tour for an album you have to
1: oh i know i know it's yeah. it's the whole reason it's the whole reason why you know they want albums to sell is so that they yeah. can so they but I just think that I think timeline
0: timeline wise, they totally messed up. That's the thing. I was just looking I, at
1: oh, looking at my uh, my tickets that I still have for the my December tour uh, that that never happened. And as I was saying, <laughs> remember how I was saying how you know we were a little leery because everybody that we knew was getting really good tickets. So again, I'm a guy who is uh 350 miles away from Chicago, and. I bought tickets for a Chicago show and a Kansas city show, the Chicago show. I have second row seats in an arena. For, that's insane for, uh, for the all state arena in uh what is that? Um, that's it's in, it's in a suburb. Is that Rosemont? Not in Chicago. I don't know. Rosemont. Yes. I love and how then, I know this and
0: I'm not even from the Midwest. Right. I stayed at a, I stayed at a hotel in Rosemont once. Yeah. That's my knowledge of Rosemont, but these were not GA shows. Keep that in mind. These were not like the meaning of life tour. I don't think they were. I think these were actual seats, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I, I so I got second row for Chicago, and then I've got these Kansas City tickets, which I had uh, eighth row. So those were like two of the best seats that I had ever gotten for Kelly shows, just without you know going through any other sort of measures to get them. And when I got those, after the sort of excitement of getting really great tickets sort of wore off, I thought, uh oh. That doesn't bode well, because if the really, really good tickets are still available when I got them, then that's not a good sign.
0: Yeah. So, again, yeah, the they canceled the tour about a week or so before the album came out. That already is just so many red flags, and that's not why the album didn't do well. Again, as we've mentioned, there were a ton of factors, but it this definitely didn't add to it. So, like, I was so bummed because this was supposed to be my first Kelly concert. And I was like, oh, my God, the universe hates me. It's <laughs> fine. So, they actually, in September of 2007, they, I think, or maybe like late August, um, they actually reannounced, like, a new my. December tour, mm-hmm. which I thought timeline wise was very ballsy of them because the tour started October 10th. So I think, I think it was very, I think it was around Labor Day, 2007, give or take, they announced the new tour and it was all in like much smaller theaters, probably up to like, I don't know, three, 4,000 capacity, give or take, depending mm-hmm. on the theaters. So, um, she ended up, you know, the f- first few shows, um, I think she did like, she did two shows on somewhere on the East coast. Then she did three nights at the Beacon Theater in New York City, which is a gorgeous, gorgeous theater, sold out all three nights. I went to the first night because actually they had two shows shows—a Monday and Tuesday night that sold out really quickly. I didn't get tickets in time, which, you know, I'm a proud Kelly fan. I'm happy that they had sold out. And then I was very, very happy. They added a last-minute Sunday night show, and I got tickets for that. So that was my first Kelly show. But Clive Clive showed up, I think, to the Monday night, which I was not there for. And I think it was – there's a video on YouTube. Basically, everyone knew Clive Davis was there. I don't know how, but everyone knew that. And I think it was during Because of You. The whole crowd was just – Exploding with cheering because they just knew that, like, Clive was such an ass about the whole situation. <laughs> it was pretty great. It's on YouTube. It's really fun. But yeah, she sold out a, a number of the shows. Again, the three New York shows, she sold out Philly, Chicago, um, Toronto, Minneapolis. That's a good sign. I mean, yes, yeah. they're much smaller shows, but it's always good when you, you know, it's always better to sell out a small show and have to add more of them than having a 50% sold bigger venue it's always better it looks better you feel better as the artist um and she had John um McLaughlin who had opened who kind of like Matt Carney was a small act he had like one fairly big-ish song um ironically called Beautiful Disaster yep and yeah, it was good. I mean, I don't think him or Matt Carney would have sold a ton of tickets. I don't think they were that's that was really the purpose of them being there, but they were, you know, a nice addition. And she did some European tours <clears throat> and an Australian tour, similar venue size, and it did really well. So, it worked out in a sense.
1: Yeah, in a yeah, and I think that ultimately that was I I appreciated that tour I think more than whatever the arena tour would have been, and she ultimately did go on to play arenas, and that's sort of what her mo is now, and that's great. Uh, but I I I really really was happy to go to that tour because there was just something about going to the the tour that replaces a tour that gets canceled. Uh, it's like we almost wanted to go out and support her even harder because we wanted her to know that hey we're all here we're going to be buying tickets and we're just glad that you're still playing live shows we don't care the size of the venue uh it's more important just that we see you and see you perform live yeah now uh we we have to go back and and sort of close the book on one of the characters in this story and that is Jeff Quantinas uh Jeff kind of one of the last things that Jeff does with Kelly is uh, he gets to oversee the cancellation of the My December tour, which happens, as we've said, a couple of weeks before the album is released. And right about the time that the tour is canceled, Jeff is fired and his tenure sort of spans the the touring of Breakaway and the lead up to My December. Now, Jeff gets an executive producer credit on the album, like we had said again, that might have been a deal that was struck behind the scenes with him and Kelly as part of his management package. You know, he could have been like, okay. And as part of my deal, I get EP credits on all of your albums. Yada, yada has nothing to do with what he may or may not have been doing behind the scenes to actually help create the album. Um, There was word from people that he had really tried to overly control her career, uh, kind of puppet master it, if you will. Every single thing she did, every move she made, you know, and and ultimately, artist management and tour management get together, and they're the ones who sort of plot out the roadmap for tours. Pam, am I am I correct in in that? Uh,
0: not really, actually. Um, okay. So, just from my experience, it's typically a man- management and the agent. That will the agent. I map everything like the agent. out. That's no, okay. Tour management typically, once the tour is booked and like ready, like it's it's out there, the tour manager is the one who is kind of the, um, I guess, middleman between the artist and management and the venue. So, they're the ones who kind of will talk to the venue directly about scheduling and catering and logistics and things mm. like that. And they'll communicate between the venue and the artist slash the management. Okay, if that makes any sense. So the the tour manager comes into play once the tour is booked.
1: Right, and so the the word was is that Quatnez really wanted Kelly to tour arenas. He was the one who pushed her towards you know sort of the next step in her career. And it's like, look, if you can play these big amphitheaters, you can play arenas. And so he pushes the arenas. And I guess he was also really wrapped up in the RCA sort of drama with Clive Davis that it was getting more focus from him than it really probably should have. So ultimately, I think it's, it's those factors. And, you know, considering how burnt out Kelly was at the end and the reason why we bring him up, uh, during the breakaway era is because, you know, he was sort of the one who was signing on, I think to continue these tours and probably I think breakaway look, I think the album definitely deserved a second tour. I think the third was probably a little too much. And I I think that that was probably at Jeff's urging and and pressing because the album was still selling well. And I think that Kelly just sort of got a good snapshot over the course of a year, year and a half of what her life was going to be like being managed by him and saw sort of the, you know, the writing on the wall that this is not the person that I want leading the charge. Now, obviously, During some of these moments, uh, she has some really, really big moments in her life. You know, she wins her first Grammys, and, you know, we all remember her tearfully thanking Jeff and calling him, you know, a a great manager uh, on stage at the Grammys. So obviously, you know, he was there for some good moments for her, and he did bring some quality to her life and to her career. But I think ultimately, there was just a lot of mismanagement going on and he wasn't focused on the right things. And I think he wasn't, he wasn't, I think treating Kelly like a person. He was treating her more like a commodity and you just can't do that, especially with what is still at this point, a very young artist who is getting her bearings in the music industry. And it ultimately just, it it did not work out in the end. So Jeff is let go. And this is where we enter in. Narble Blackstock and uh, Starstruck as her management, which we all know is now in its own situation, ending yeah. very poorly.
0: Yeah, I mean, but yeah, Starstruck, she was with them for thirteen years, give mm-hmm. or take, which is a pretty long time to be with 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 the management company. So, I mean, yeah. you know, we don't know at the moment what's going on with that. I mean, presumably they're not. You know, doing things in her best interest, like finding seeking new opportunities for her. That's that's what I would assume, but we don't know what's going on. But yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I think ultimately it was really good for her because, you know, after that, this era, which was a pretty short lived era, she ended up doing a lot with Reba. You know, the Two Worlds, mm-hmm. Two Voices tour. She did two legs of that, and then. I think that was Which a good was,
1: palate cleanser, by the way, from
0: I think it was the My
1: December tour. I think it was good to have somebody that she really cared about in Reba, and is it was a mentor to her to kind of help her. Kind of, okay, you know, you fell a little bit during this album cycle. Let me pick you up. Let's go out on tour. Let's reignite your love for what you do, and let's just go out and have some fun. No pressure, you know. Reba can. Sell tickets just on her name alone, but then you get the two of them together and it's a heck of a deal. They do the crossroads, which was huge. So I think that was a really, really good. And again, I'll use my phrase, the palate cleanser from between the My December and All I Ever Wanted eras.
0: And this is like kind of random, but like 2008, which is when the Two Worlds, Two Voices, the two different, the two different legs happened, like it was a really bad time in our economy it was really bad and i mean again reba is massive and i think you know obviously kelly didn't use her because the two of them are like bffs and everything but i think the fact that kelly and reba like that reba took kelly under her wing and they were able to kind of promote each other Mm -hmm. during a really bad time for touring and they still sold out probably most of the shows that says a lot yeah it says a lot. But, but yeah, they, also, I, I, they
1: also were smarter and they didn't try to go out and, you know, do all arenas and everything. I mean, they did – they were smart with how they booked those shows. And
0: they did very secondary markets. Like, yep. they did nothing in the New York City area. Mm-hmm. They did. I had to go see her in, like, Bridgeport, Bridgeport, Connecticut, which is not – I mean, it's not far, but it's, it is not a New York City market. Sure. So, like, they definitely hit up the smaller um, markets where – People don't normally tour, Mm -hmm. so people don't normally see these artists. It was kind of smart. So again, I mean, I don't know generally because I know I don't really know where she went on the West Coast or Midwest, but like at least on the East Coast, like they really hit up markets that Kelly hadn't been to in years and maybe ever. I don't know. So yeah, I thought it was smart.
1: Yeah, let's see. I I saw I saw the two worlds, two voices in Moline, Illinois. Okay, so that's you know that's not. Chicago. I mean, it's it's about a two-ish, two-and-a-half-hour drive from Chicago. But again, it's it's not Chicago. The other place that I saw her was Rockford, Illinois. So is that anywhere near Chicago? Yeah. I mean, Rockford is about as – it's about far enough out of Chicago that you can't consider it a suburb, but it's not terribly far from Chicago. But you're right. You know, Rockford, Moline, not big markets for tours, definitely secondary markets. But in those areas where you're going to get sort of the, oh, how do I put this in a way? Uh, the outlying <laughs> rural areas that are going to clamor to see Ariba in concert. Yeah, those shows are definitely going to do very well.
0: Absolutely. And then like, even if you're a huge country fan and don't really pay attention to a ton to pop music, like. You've likely heard of Kelly Clarkson and might know a song or two of hers. So you're like, cool. That's, that's kind of an interesting show. Like, let's go. Let's like us. And this was the very first time I believe that Kelly, which she's now done a couple of times on a few tours. This is the first example we have of Kelly doing the Thursday, Friday, Saturday format for a, for a tour, mm-hmm. which is, v- which she did on meaning of life. I believe very smart because. Yeah. You know, going to a concert on a Monday night sucks. <laughs> Thursday you can get away with because it's the end of the week, and obviously Friday and Saturday nights are ideal. Mm-hmm. So very smart. I don't know if that was Reba's team who introduced that idea to Kelly. I don't know, but props, major props.
1: <laughs> All right, so to sort of encapsulate this whole era, um, you know, the the My December era was a really messy time for. Kelly, you know, she is trying to spread her wings as a songwriter. She has a lot on her heart, a lot on her mind that she knows no better way to get out of her than by putting paper to pen to paper and writing songs. And it ultimately comes out with the album that she needed to get off of her chest. And Unfortunately, it was not seen by the general public as accessible. It was not the the Kelly Clarkson that we had all just been accustomed to from Thankful and to Breakaway. And we'll talk about this once we start going more forward and talking about the All I Ever Wanted era. But and we're and you'll hear at least me using the term overcorrection. There's a huge swing back to pop music for the All I Ever Wanted album. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, this is an album, and I'll even throw the era sort of into it as a whole. This is an album that the fans really, really love. And I honestly, and I'm, and I'm, I'm going to say this, and it's going to sound like I'm dissing it or that, you know, that I don't love the album. But it's an album that fans really, really love, and I haven't quite been able to figure out why. And I know that hmm. sounds bad. But hear me out. I think that this album has some of the most unique material that she has recorded. And I do think it has a lot to do with the fact that she was the writing force behind the album. I've said my piece about the production of the album that is separate from the songs and the lyrical content themselves. I thought that the songs and the lyrics were really good. I just thought that they were mishandled on the production and on the other side of the booth, so to speak in the studio. I thought that that could have been much, much better, but the material is there. It's really, really solid. And I think that it was, it was a great way for her fans. And again, I'm talking to you guys, you know, the real hardcore fans, it was a really great, way to see into who she really was as a person. I mean, this is probably actually her most personal album that she's ever released. And
0: yeah, I was going to say, I think the reason why people gravitate the most, like they gravitate towards it so much is because it's by far her most honest album. And the fact that she did write on every single track, which we have not seen since.
1: She definitely put out an album that exposes herself More so than she will do again in her career. Now, you know, who knows what, you know, again, this next album that she puts out is going to sound like, but, you know, this is the most vulnerable that we've heard her and, and, and not like vulnerable, like, you know, I'm really scared to share this feeling with you. I mean, this was like, I was hurting. Here's how I felt. And that was in multiple songs. Uh, so it is obviously one of the most unique albums in her entire catalog. And, I I've, I've, I would love to talk to individual fans and just say, tell me why you love this album so much or why do you like this album like you do? Because I know that it's going to have different meanings for different people. You know, some people are going to be like, I just like how it sounds. There's going to be some people that say, I relate to what she's saying. And there's going to be others that say, I just love to see this side of her. So there there is no wrong answer as to why you may or may not like this album. Or, or love the album, um, and I think that's what's so fascinating about it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So let us know what you think. You yes. know where to find us: uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at Missin Podcast, and uh, you can always email us missinpodcast at gmail dot com. Um, I think that wraps up part two. Oh
1: my gosh, I hope so. <laughs> I don't, I don't know what <laughs> a else lot of there research is. went into this. I don't know what else there is to say about this album. Um, you know I in in researching for these two episodes, I really did enjoy going back and re listening to the album uh, knowing again, you know being 13, 14 years removed from the record. it's nice to know that she's in a better place now and I would be really interested to hear her go back and listen to this album and just talk about what she was feeling when she wrote these songs and how does she feel today hearing those songs?
0: Like I know on Spotify, they have these really cool things where, which I think she did it for stronger where you can do like a commentary, like a track by track sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I would love to hear this like for the older albums to go back and do like a play by play. That would be very interesting to hear a 2021 perspective on early 2000 stuff.
1: So thank you very much, everybody, for coming along on this journey with us through the My December album. Uh, Make sure, like Pam said, that you uh, subscribe and rate. Put in your uh, comments uh, and definitely leave us a review on iTunes so more and more people can get uh, exposed to the podcast. We're back again next week with an all-new episode. Until then, take care and we'll see you next time.
0: Bye. You've been listening to Miss Indie Podcast, the Kelly Clarkson Fan Podcast. Miss Indie Podcast was written and produced by Jeremy and Pam. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you'll be the first to know when a new podcast is posted. Continue the conversation by following the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Miss Indie Podcast. Send us your questions and comments to IndiePodcast at gmail.com.